Under the patriarchal age, the fathers of the household were the priests. They are the ones that offered up sacrifices for the people. Under the Mosaic dispensation, the priesthood was a special class of people from the tribe of Levi, and more particularly from the family of Aaron. And at any given time, it seems, the oldest living male descendant of Aaron was the high priest, and all other sons of Aaron had various priestly duties. David divided the priesthood into 24 orders because there was so much confusion in the, in the temple and in the temple service. Under the new covenant, all Christians are, are priests and have spiritual sacrifices to offer. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the rejected stone. The Jewish ruling class rejected him. They did not want Jesus to be the foundation of the kingdom of God. They did not want Jesus to be king over the kingdom of God. They just didn't like Jesus because he didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would be like. And so they rejected him in spite of the miracles that he performed. And thus, though he was a living stone, he was also a rejected stone. And we are to come to him and we will come to him if we are Christians we sang the song, and I really like that song, 504, I want to be a worker for the Lord. And if you don't want to be a worker for the Lord, you lied when you sang that song. I appreciate that in Tom's prayer this evening. We, we can't, cannot afford to come to God with lying lips. Either we want to be workers for the Lord or we don't, and if we do, we will be workers for the Lord. And so rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. God chose Jesus, whom men rejected. God chose him as the living stone upon which the foundation, uh, the cornerstone of the foundation of the apostles and prophets, to build his kingdom, his church. And... We are now built up on him a spiritual house, not a physical house. Under the patriarchal, the patriarchal age, there was no temple. Under the Mosaic age, there was first a tabernacle and then later a temple. We do not have a physical house. We've got church buildings and they serve, certainly serve a purpose. But we need to understand this building is not the church. It's not the temple of God. The temple of God under the new covenant is the Lord's people collectively. And the Lord's people collectively are a spiritual house and each local congregation is a spiritual house and it is to be a holy priesthood. 
and the responsibilities of this holy priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Abraham and other priests under the patriarchal age offered up animal sacrifices. The Aaronic priesthood under the law of Moses offered up animal sacrifices. But the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross put an end to physical sacrifices. He nailed the law to the cross, put an end to the priesthood and the uh, sacrificial system that had operated for so long and instituted a new sacrificial system. A system of spiritual sacrifices performed by a spiritual priesthood. And only if we offer up these spiritual sacrifices are we acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there are many different kinds of spiritual sacrifices. First of all, there is the sacrifice of praise. And by first of all, I simply mean the order of presentation. I don't mean that it's any more important than the other spiritual sacrifices. But we've got to start somewhere. So we're going to start with a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now the book of Hebrews was written, it seems to me, to Jewish Christians that lived in and around the environment, in Jerusalem and its environs, and who were Christians. They had become Christians. They had accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They had begun uh, to be a spiritual priest, and they had begun to offer up spiritual sacrifices. But they were persecuted, and they, they didn't... Didn't like that, and so many of them had gone back to the old sacrificial system that still existed. It was still being perpetuated by those who rejected Christ, perpetuated against the will of God. And so they went back to that sacrificial system and would take sacrifices, physical animal sacrifices, to the temple for the priests to kill and then to offer those unto God which, of course, God did not accept because that was a typical system. The law of Moses, as was the patriarchal age, full of prophetic types of what God would expect under the new covenant. And so the patriarchal priesthood, the Mosaic or Aaronic priesthood were prophetic types, shadows of the reality that God eventually would establish a spiritual house, a spiritual priesthood, offer up spiritual sacrifices. And in thanks for what God has done, in gratitude for what he has done, we are to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He deserves to be praised. You know, we like to be appreciated for our accomplishments. We like to be appreciated for our good deeds. And that's nice, but it doesn't really matter in the long run whether man appreciates what we do that is right. What matters is whether God appreciates it, and we should know and have confidence in the fact that God does appreciate everything we do for him. But we owe it to him. We owe him a debt to praise him and to offer the sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Not just the fruit of lips, but the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. If a person does not acknowledge the name of Jesus Christ and of God through him, his praise will fall on deaf ears. We need to be praising God with the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, in the model prayer, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father, hallowed be your name. That is, to me, the first step in praise. It's to consider God's name hallowed, separate and distinct and higher than any other name. To hallow God's name is to hold it in highest esteem. And only those who are true workers of the Lord are doing that. And so that's a part of the sacrifice of praise, to, to pray to God and, and in your prayer to give an acknowledgement of the greatness of his name, to hallow his name. When Christians act in a way that is contrary to what God's will is, we besmirch his name. We besmirch the name of Christ if we call ourselves Christians and are not workers for the Lord, are not offering up spiritual sacrifices. Our lips are soiled when we speak his name if we're not living up to the expectations that he has for us. In Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now notice that there is a twofold direction here of this singing. We are to sing to one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but also with thankfulness in our hearts to God. If when we come together to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, there is no thankfulness in our hearts to God, we're not accomplishing anything of a spiritual nature at all. God wants us to worship Him, but He wants us to worship Him in a manner consistent with His will. And the first step in that is to acknowledge the sanctity of His name and to have gratitude in your hearts and everything we do is to be an outpouring of that gratitude. And so, yes, sacrifice the praise of uh, uh, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, and we acknowledge his name by keeping it sacrosanct in our lives and not just in our speech. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and these are the purpose of teaching and admonishing one another, but they are also part of our praise to God. When we teach and admonish one another in, in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God, we are offering up sacrifice of praise unto Him. But both those things have to be involved. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
That's another way of saying that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise. We praise his name when and to the extent that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? That means we share with others how great we know God is. And we share with others the fact that God created us in his own image. We share the fact that everything, as I mentioned Sunday morning, everything, in the, everything that happened that's recorded in the Bible was a means to the end of fulfilling that first prophecy spoken by God to Satan. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. When you think about it, the story of God's dealings with man is his story. And it has been revealed in just such a way as to help us better appreciate what he has done. We talked about the the repetition throughout uh, the Bible in our second hour Sunday morning. The book of Deuteronomy, for example, Moses uh, preaches the historical uh, experiences of, of Israel as they were led out of Egypt and, and brings those events right up into the present time while he is preaching to them. And so everything you read in Exodus and Numbers is pretty much repeated one way or the other in the book of Deuteronomy. Why, does, why did God preserve the book of Deuteronomy? For the same reason that Moses spoke the word to Deuteronomy to help the people of Israel and to help us later appreciate what God had done for Israel. First and second Chronicles from the beginning to end is a history of God's dealings with mankind. He begins with Adam and he finishes up with the return of the Jews from the 70 year captivity. Daniel in Daniel chapter nine Toward the end of those 70 years, in Daniel chapter 9, he prays a prayer of confession and intercession on behalf of Israel, captive Judah, I should say. He confesses their sins and he petitions God for forgiveness and for a return to the promised land. Daniel's very contrite in that. But in that prayer, you see the history of God's dealing with his people. Once Nehemiah comes back over to the promised land, in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah prays a prayer of intercession and and petition before God. And and in that petition, he gives a, a shorter history, historical account of God's dealings with Israel in particular, Why did they do that? Well, Daniel wants it a matter of record, and God, of course, inspired Daniel so that it would be a matter of record, a reminder of what God had done for them. And Nehemiah, the same thing. And so God has repeated time and time again through various prophets, Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, later in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, he takes you from Abel right on through the the Old Testament. 
people who demonstrated their faith by their actions. Why does he do that? He wants us to learn that we manifest our faith by our obedience to him. And Israel was to proclaim his excellencies. In many cases, they neglected that. They failed to do that. The Jewish ruling class in particular, they were arrogant. They put a load upon the people that they themselves could not carry. They considered themselves righteous, though they, in many cases, elevated traditions of men, traditions of their fathers above the very commandments of God. And gave the people loopholes through which they could escape their responsibility to God. Of course, no one can truly escape our responsibilities to God. We may think we can. We might be deceived into thinking we can, but we cannot. So we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Just as he called Egypt out, or Israel out of Egypt, he called every one of us out of sin, out of the darkness of sin. And he called us into his marvelous light. And we owe him such a debt we could never repay it. I think Gary and I were talking at lunch today. You know, maybe it's Mark and me. Because it's hard to get together with either one of these guys and not talk about the Bible. Uh, God has a standard of perfection. We cannot achieve it, but we should strive for it. And that's what God expects. Too, far, too many people, even of the Lord's people, or who think they are the Lord's people, are not striving to rise above the darkness out of which they were supposedly called. In both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul tells the people, you need to put off the old man. I don't know how long they've been Christians. But there hadn't been a sufficient change in their lives for it to be that evident. Put off the old man. And too many times Christians just drag their feet doing that. We do it piecemeal. You know, one day at a time we think, well, we need to double up, triple up, quadruple up, or double down as some might say. And put forth all the effort that we can. As Peter, as Paul wrote to Timothy Study or put forth effort to make yourself right with God. A worker needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter says the same thing in Second Peter chapter 1. Put forth every effort to add to your faith virtue, etc. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing. And only to the extent that we're doing that are we proclaiming the excellence of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Then he says, once you were not a people, the, the by and large, the majority of the Christians or churches that Peter is writing to were Gentile. They were not a people. They were simply persons. Jew, uh, Israel at one time were a people. And then they were divided. And you had two people. You had the people of Israel who were no longer God's people, 
He tolerated them for hundreds of years and finally allowed Assyria to destroy them. Judah remained God's people for a while, but then they would have one evil king and then a good king and then an evil king and finally Manasseh, the most wicked of those kings. And he was so wicked, God announced, no, I'm not going to put up with it any longer. You're going into captivity. And through Jeremiah, he revealed that that captivity would last 70 years. So these Gentiles were not a people, though the Jews were. So he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. They had become a people, singular collective, through their acceptance of the gospel. When they allowed God to call them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we allow God to do that by obedience to the gospel. Believing in him. Repenting of our sins. Confessing our faith and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we become spiritual priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And we cannot afford to cease to be priests. We cannot, because to cease to be priests is to cease to be faithful. We have to be spiritual people, a spiritual people, the people of God, a spiritual priesthood, offer up spiritual sacrifices. So once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every time I read this verse, I think of Hosea. Hosea was commanded by God to take a wife from the immoral peoples. Gomer was her name. The first child, his name was Jezreel, and then they had a, two other children. And I think the, the second one was a girl, Lo-Rohami, Lo, Lo not my people. Or maybe that's no mercy. And then Lo-Ami is not, not, not no mercy. And Lo-Ruhama is not my people. And so by giving these names or telling uh, Hosea to give these names to his children, he was declaring to Israel, you are no longer my people and I am ceasing to show mercy on you. He had been merciful to the long, long, uh, a lot further longer than they had ceased to be. His people. How did he show mercy? Well, he held off. Destroying them utterly until such time. As I said, I guess like the Amorites, their sin was full. And so they were, they were destroyed by the Assyrians. And so we've received mercy. And because we've received mercy, we are God's people we are a spiritual house. We are a spiritual priesthood. We are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. The first is a sacrifice of praise. Then we have cheerful sacrificial giving is another spiritual sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, seri a, a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I want you to notice those underlying uh, portions there. First of all, notice that 
He is talking about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God has been gracious to the churches of Macedonia. That would be the church at uh, Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, and the church of Berea, or at least two of those three, if not all three. Well, how did God show grace to them? By giving them an opportunity to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. And that's what he's talking about here. And he says, for a, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were, they were impoverished. And yet they heard about these poor saints over in Jerusalem who were impoverished, but the adverb very is not attached to them <laughs> or extreme poverty. And so there's kind of a contrast. It seems like, and some have suggested, that maybe the Macedonians were worse off financially than, the, than those in Jerusalem. But their extreme, the abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, have, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. This is how extreme their poverty was. They gave beyond their means of their own accord. There was no force. There was no uh, coercion involved here. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he tells, he tells them, uh, the Corinthians, that they had volunteered a year ago to help these poor saints. Interestingly, even though Corinth had volunteered first, Paul gets to Macedonia before he gets to Corinth. And he uses the Corinthian example to stir up the Macedonians. And so since he's already in Macedonia, they give before the Corinthians do. And now he's using the example of the, of the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians to follow through on their promise. So again, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly. So they had to beg Paul for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I get the impression Paul said, look, y'all got, en got enough on you. Uh, you know, I appreciate your attitude, but, you know, you know you can't really afford this. Please, Paul, please, let us have a part in this relief. And this, not as we ex expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The reason they were... Willing, so willing to share in their extreme poverty with the poverty of the Jewish saints in Jerusalem was because they gave themselves first to the Lord. See, they sacrificed themselves. They sacrificed their lives and their money just naturally followed. It didn't matter how little they had. They were going to share what they could to help out those poor saints in Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, he's still basically talking about the same thing. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, the benevolence, Paul's third missionary journey, though Luke does not give attention to it. 
Paul's third missionary journey was basically for the purpose of stirring up these churches to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. That's why in Acts chapter 21, uh, or Acts chapter 22, when he's standing in front of uh, Herod or, or, or Festus or Felix, one of those guys, he said, I came to bring uh, alms for my country. He's not talking about the unconverted Jews. He's talking about the Jewish brethren there. And, of course, others came with him. Each of those local churches chose their own minister to take their poor part. Paul did not collect it, but he went with them. So he was a part in that. He says, now it is superfluous. In other words, I don't need to do this. It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness. Again, he mentioned that in 1 Corinthians. Of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. I guess I got ahead of myself a minute ago. He's letting them know, I'm on my way. You have demonstrated a great zeal. And I've used that zeal to stir up the Macedonians. But now I'm headed your way. He goes on and says, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. So that you may be ready as I said you would be. Lest they forget, he's sending brothers ahead to remind them of their voluntary willingness to share what they had with the brethren in Judea, in Jerusalem. And so he wants them to be ready. He doesn't want to come and they say, wait, wait, you know, ah, yeah, you're right, Paul, we did promise that, but, you know, we just forgot all about that. So he's sending some brethren ahead to remind them of that. Otherwise, if some Macedonians with me come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, Paul and those with him. Not to, to say nothing of you. What if we get down there and you don't have it? So he's sending this brother in ahead. We would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that you may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. He didn't want to get down there and put pressure on them. And so he's sending these brethren ahead to remind them of their willingness of making a free will contribution to the poor saints. And so just as Corinth had given, or, or Macedonia had given themselves to God, Corinth had done the same thing. And I don't know that they had forgotten but Paul wants to make sure they hadn't forgot. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We reap what we sow. Paul in the Galatian letter says, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap of the Spirit everlasting life, but if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap uh, condemnation. Reap the whirlwind, I think maybe he says. Each one must give 
as he has decided in his heart. There is no exaction. There is no percentage. There is no demand of a tenth. That's what tithe means, by the way. Under the Old Testament, they had to tithe. They had to give a tenth because the tribe of uh, Levi, having their priestly duties, they weren't giving any land. They weren't giving any land by God. They had no land portion. They had no means of uh, growing crops. They had no means of raising cattle. And so they were to be taken care of by the rest of the Jews giving a tenth. And that's what tithe meant. Under the New Testament, no, a tithe, the tenth is not demanded. But we must decide in our hearts what we can and therefore will give. Not only for the poor saints, but for the work of the local church. Because the local church has its responsibilities and obligations also. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so another sacrifice, in addition to the sacrifice of praise, is cheerful sacrificial giving. And then there's the sacrifice and service of faith. In Philippians 2, 14 through 17, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's all things God expects of you, not all things, whether right or wrong. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. We talked about that Sunday morning in the class. There is a sense in which we can be proud. I think in the King James he uses the word boast, uh, but he wasn't boasting in himself. He was boasting in them. And so he wanted to have a good feeling about what he accomplished in Philippi. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Some, if, if one of the elders or, 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 or the men as a, as a whole give us a responsibility, we are to accept that responsibility without grumbling or disputing. Now, if, if, we, if there's a, a, a problem uh, with your conscience, uh, you don't believe it would be right, then you would be within your rights to, to challenge that and to explain why it is that, no, I, I can't do that. We ought not to be doing that. I've heard of preachers who had been given by the churches, the local church they preached, uh, pocket money. So they could give this pocket money, which was from the church treasury, to people in need. And then they would say, well, that's an individual. Well, not if it's pocket money given by the church. That's the church working. And so he's talking about things that are right in and of themselves. Do all those things without grumbling or disputing. He goes on to say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And so their faith, as it manifested itself in whatever duty that they were performing, was sacrificial. It was a sacrificial offering of faith. And he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Oftentimes, we're going to read a couple of passages in a moment, but 
Along with the animal sacrifice, there would be a drink offering poured out along with that. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, where God had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Now, a drink offering is a sacrifice because that's something you might have drunk in order to sustain your life. Instead of drinking that, consuming that, uh, you, you sacrifice that to God. And they would pour it out on the ground, not wasting it, but dedicating it to God. In Second uh, Samuel chapter 23, and beginning with verse 13, we see David in a situation. He's not far from Bethlehem here. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about, uh, came about harvest time to David at the ca- uh, cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistine was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, David's not asking anybody to do that. He's not commanding anybody to do that. He's, it's, it's a longing that he, that he has. It's kind of like wishful thinking on our part. We don't expect it to be done, but it sure would be nice to get a drink from the water in the well of Bethlehem by the gate. But notice what these three men did. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. You think, well, wasn't that an insult after all they'd gone through to get that? Well, let's... Keep reading. And brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Poured it on the ground. You might think, well, they probably wouldn't appreciate that. I really believe they would. Because they would already know what I'm fixing to say, even if, and maybe you don't know it. Maybe you do. But I'm going to say it anyway for the benefit of those who may not. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, that is, drink this water. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives by drinking the water that they had risked their lives to bring from the well of Bethlehem? He would, in effect, be drinking their blood because that's what they took a chance on. They took a chance on their blood being shed by the Philistines. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. What's he saying? He's saying that this water that you have brought me from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate at such a risk is now too precious for me to drink. I'm not worthy to drink it. But God is worthy to receive it. And I believe he elevated those men by pouring that drink offering out on the ground for the Lord. Because by his doing that, that water served a higher purpose than what they had intended. And I believe they understood that. 
There's no indication that they did not in the text. That is something you would think that they would be very familiar with. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes, As, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul is writing from Roman imprisonment. I used to say he was writing from prison. He probably wasn't in a prison in the strict sense of that term, at least in the first imprisonment, as we call it. He was in a hired house, but he was under guard. He couldn't go anywhere, though he could receive Christians that came to him. Second Timothy probably is the last of Paul's inspired epistles that have remained unto us. He's about to die. He's about to be put to death by Nero. According to history, Nero beheaded Paul. As a Roman citizen, Paul was exempt from crucifixion because crucifixion was a death of agony, an agonizing death, but beheadment was quick and merciful. And so he would have been beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. He fully expects that, apparently. I am ready to be already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. His soul is going to be poured out as a sacrifice to God. Why is that? Because he had dedicated his life to the preaching of the gospel. He had taken the gospel to the Gentile world. Certainly he preached to Jews wherever he went. But he was mainly the apostle or an apostle, he says, to the Gentiles. And in all likelihood, as far as the record is concerned, he was the primary preacher to the Gentiles, apostle to the Gentiles, though Peter was the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But Paul was given a missionary journey to go out into Rome. Remember what we said last night about the Roman, the, the uh, Pax Romana, the Roman peace and the roads. Travel was easy. Travel was safe. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have much more freedom in his travel than one who was not a Roman citizen. I believe that probably had something to do with Paul's being chosen as an apostle to the Gentiles, as the primary deliverer of the gospel to the Gentiles. But because of his dedication of his life, and he is about to be faithful unto death, not just until he died. We talked about that, Mark and I. That's where I think the New King James missed it on Revelation 2.10. It's not faithful until you die. It's faithful unto death, faithful in the face of death. Not all of us will be called upon to face death for the gospel. We all must be faithful until we die. But if we're called upon providentially to face death for the gospel's sake, we must be faithful unto death in the face of death, even though our service to God may in fact result in our death. And, and in doing that, our lives will be poured out as a drink offering. He goes on to say, I have kept the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith or fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who are those who have loved, loved his appearing? Well, those who acknowledge his name, those who praise him, those who manifest or proclaim the excellencies of God, those who have made these various sacrifices, sacrifice of praise, sac- cheerful giving, and, and the sacrifice and service of, uh, of, of faith. These are the ones who love his coming. His coming. If we're not busy for the Lord, we're not hoping for him to come. We are really dreading his coming. You can't realistically hope for the Lord to come if you're not and know you're not living up to the standard God has set or not even striving to do so. If you don't want to be a worker for the Lord, you won't be. And if you're not a worker for the Lord, you don't really love his appearing or the idea of it. You're not looking forward to it. You're praying, in effect, that he puts that off until maybe you're through sowing your wild oats. But if you do that, you'll probably never finish sowing your wild oats. You'll go on in your profligate living. You'll go on being a prodigal son or daughter until it's too late to come back. Finally, your body as a living sacrifice is to be offered unto God as a spiritual sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. No, immolation will not do any good. Setting yourself afire, remember what Paul said, if I set myself afire and have not love, I am nothing. Yeah, setting yourself afire ain't going to accomplish anything. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we do that by doing all these other things that we talked about. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations say worship. Some translations say spirit. Some translations say spiritual worship. And uh, I believe the word is lutreo. And... uh, both those ideas are, in, are involved in that. But he's not talking about congregational worship necessarily. He's talking about individual worship, individual service. Because he uses the plural bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Each one of us is to do that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed The difference is conformation takes place on the outside only. Transformation begins on the inside and works its way out. The word for transformation here is metamorphosis or a form of that word. And in the the winter, as winter approaches, a caterpillar will climb up a tree, climb out on a branch, climb out on a twig, spin a cocoon around itself and spend the winter in there. And in the springtime, a beautiful butterfly eats his way out of that cocoon. What has happened? A transformation, a metamorphosis. And this gets back to what we are saying about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It's It's not good enough to look and act like a Christian. We must be Christians. 
It's not good enough to act like one who is serving God. We must be one who is serving God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, it starts, starts in the mind, and here the mind and the heart are basically the same thing, the inner man, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A, spirit, a person who is not a spiritually minded person, he can never discern what is the will of God. Oh, he may think, he may, he may know some things about the will of God. He might be able to tell you the steps of salvation, but he doesn't really understand the will of God if he has never become a Christian. Because if he understood the will of God, he would have become a Christian and he would be a faithful Christian. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse, verse Corinthians 6 and verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When Jesus died on the cross, it was to purchase us from sin. And when we acknowledge that and accept that freely, with humility of hearts. Ceasing to lean upon our own understanding and beginning to trust in the Lord with all our heart. That's when we are bought with a price. And that's the only person that can glorify God in his body. And you really don't have to tell a person like that to do so. It's kind of like what I heard Bill Hall say years ago, Tom, you don't have to tell a modest woman how to dress. If she's a modest woman, she dresses modestly. But the same thing could be true with a man. There are a lot of men out there that don't dress modestly. Why, does, why is that? Because they're not modest men. If, we're not, if we don't want to be workers for the Lord, we, we will not be, cannot be. Not in an acceptable sense. If you need to make your heart right with God, as an alien sinner, 